There we go. Okay, again, we're at the Church of Thyatira, a church that had good things, but also very um, um, dangerous things of allowing um, sin to creep in. And so, yes, it had noble qualities, but it also uh, tolerated theological compromise. And so the reality is that they were a weak church and also a dying church because when we allow um, uh, wrong theology into the church, the church begins to die. Um, and so we may be blinded and think things are going great with us, not realizing that there is compromise. God hates compromise. And we see that in this church. So we need to search our hearts continually. Now we started uh, last time with a description of Jesus Christ there in verse 18. And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, The Son of God who has eyes like the flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. The first thing we saw here is his deity. The phrase Son of God that occurs only here in the book of Revelation. And here it refers to Jesus' deity, that he is God and he has the right to judge and he will judge rightly. And then we talked about his eyes. As we saw here, they're like a flame of fire. This refers to um, his discerning and severe judgment. He sees and he's able to judge correctly and accurately. So he's the divine judge who sees all. And the third description referred to his feet. We looked at that. They are burnished bronze. And if you recall, we talked about that referring to a warrior. He would wear these uh, bronze shoes. And so it's a symbol of judgment where sin is crushed in judgment. Then in verse 19, we see Jesus' commendation of these uh, people. I know your deeds and your love and faith and service and perseverance and that your deeds of late are greater than at first. And so notice, among the deeds are their love and faith and service and perseverance. And if you recall, I basically made four L words out of all of that to help you remember. They, he commended them for laboring, for their love, their loyalty, and their long-suffering. That, those are the good things. Laboring, they worked hard at performing their deeds uh, for Christ. They showed their love through their deeds. Their love was so great that it issued out in service. Their loyalty uh, means that they were reliable. When it talks about their faith, they were reliable. You can trust them. And long-suffering, of course, refers to perseverance, even under extreme pressure when their lives depended on it. But I want you to see that the best thing that's said about them is that the latter works exceed the first. That means that they were progressing. They were growing because they were doing more as they uh, continued to endure. So they had learned that the Christian life is one of growth, one of progress, one of development, one of spiritual increase. It's not something you just sit back and just, hey, when I feel like it, I'll do it. They progressed. And so we learn from the church at Thyatira that the Christian life and how it is lived is an upward trek toward greater heights, not something you sit back and wait for it to come to you. There's progress. There's constant progress in holiness and sanctification. That's important. And then also, last time we were together, I compared these first four churches just so that we could pick out some noted qualities from each church, things that we need to look into our own lives. In Ephesus, we saw that there is doctrinal orthodoxy. We need that. We need to be doctrinally faithful. We need to have that doctrinal orthodox. The church at Smyrna, 
there's suffering for righteousness sake and we do we need to expect that especially in our world today we will suffer if we continue to live for Christ in Pergamum we saw love we need that love now more than ever with all the hatred and here in Thyatira there's growth and development so in these first four churches we see certain characteristics that need to be true of us need to be true of all believers Right? Doctrine of orthodoxy, suffering for righteousness' sake, love, and growth and development. And then we started looking at the next section, verses 20 through 23, where we saw that the emphasis is on truth. And we looked at verses 20 and 21, and that's where we left off. But verses 20 and 21, we said that wrong doctrine always corrupts. Wrong doctrine always corrupts. But I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so that they may commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent and she does not want to repent of her immorality. So we saw here the tragic reality that after reading of all of these splendid qualities that they have, that there's moral compromise. No Jesus' words, I have this against you. We talked about that. These are some frightening words. Words that I would hate to hear from my Lord. I have this against you. And they're accused of giving free reign to a woman whom Jesus called Jezebel. We don't know if that is her name, and we don't even know if this is just one person. But what we do know is that it, this person had the qualities of the Jezebel we talked about there in, in the, the Old Testament First Kings. And so they, it was a group of false teachers, or it could have been just a woman, but they were false, it was a false teaching. And this person or persons had influ, uh, was very influential in getting uh, uh, God's servants, Christians, to compromise. And they fell for the idolatry in their pagan society. And notice that we talked about this. How did, the person, how did this person or this teaching do it? Jesus said that she called herself a prophetess. In other words, this false teacher stood and said that I'm speaking by God's grace. I am coming to you and giving to you the words of God. And so we have to be careful who we listen to because there are many out there saying, I am speaking the words of God when in reality they are not. This is what was happening in the church. Then we saw the rebuke against the church. So when you think of this false teaching, this Jezebel, if you will, we see that this was the epitome of subtle corruption. It was a symbol of immorality and idolatry. That's what happens when we allow false teaching into our lives and we allow false teaching into the church. Don't think you get away with it. It begins to creep in. It's like what Jesus said. A little leaven does what? Leaven. Leavens the whole lump. It will spread. It will spread. And so this person in the church that was spreading this false doctrine uh, was arguing that some degree of participation in idolatrous aspects of, the so of society and culture is okay. We're under grace. It doesn't matter. God wants us to be relevant, so we need to get involved in that stuff to be relevant. And I've heard people teach that. And as a result, some Christians in the church began to indulge in these immoral practices. And the language that's used here indicates that false teachers have been allowed to flourish. Again, we talked about this by way, this is just by way of review. So the issue here that we see in verses, uh, the, the, these first two verses of this section, 
is the unhealthy degree of toleration that was granted to these false teachers. They tolerated, the church tolerated these people to teach, to encourage, to coax people to follow them rather than rebuke them. So much so that even Christians, true Christians, because Jesus called them bond slaves, even true Christians fell for it. Don't ever think that you're protected from false teaching. It's very easy to fall into if we are not careful. And then in verse 21, I gave her time to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. We talked about that. We saw the awesome grace of God in giving this person time to repent. Uh, you think about what this person or these people were doing. By all accounts, they should have been judged and removed and cast into hell. But God gave them time to repent. But then again, so should we. When we sin, we should be judged. But by God's grace, he gives us time to repent. So even with this gracious offer, this person or these false teachers did not want to repent. They continued with their false teaching. If this church had uh, zeal for proper doctrine, it would not have tolerated this false teaching. It is dangerous. So as a result of allowing this, the church was weak. So although up front it looks like they were strong and they were doing well, no, they were weak and they were ready to be judged and even shut down and closed. So we have to understand, and it's critical, never ever forget this, that wrong doctrine, wrong doctrine always corrupts. Don't ever think that, oh, a little bit of, you know, yeah, it may be false, but it's no big deal. It's not that dangerous. It is dangerous. It is dangerous. All wrong doctrine corrupts. It is dangerous. And so in the name of love, we are to remove it, get rid of it, do not tolerate it. And I believe for us today, we are to remove it not only from the church, but from our lives. Because it's very easy to get caught up with so much stuff that's out there that it's easy to fall into wrong doctrine and wrong philosophy. Be careful, because it is very subtle. Many times it's in the name of love. Tolerate. No, we don't tolerate in the name of love. In the name of love, we remove it because it is dangerous. Right? Very, very important. So be careful who you listen to because there are many false teachers out there. And that's where we ended the last time. Wrong doctrine always corrupts, verses 20 and 21. Now we want to pick up from there. Look at verses 22 and 23. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of her deeds. And I will kill her children with pestilence. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your deeds. And what we see here is that wrong doctrine calls down God's judgment. Wrong doctrine calls down God's judgment. It not only corrupts, but God will judge. You can count on that. And notice in verse 22, he calls... Jesus talks about and calls these people who follow her um, as committing adultery. Now, this has raised a question as to what it refers. When you read some of these scholars, some say it is the uh, literal physical immorality. It's used as a metaphor for their idolatry. Some say it's just their idolatry that uh, is described as spiritual adultery. And I think there's arguments that can be made for both views. There's good scholars that hold both views, either literal adultery or spiritual adultery, one or the other. I tend to argue that it's both and. 
I don't think we pick one or the other. Okay? I don't believe one view has to be chosen over another, but I do believe that both are meant here. Because throughout Scripture, and you see it in the Old Testament again and again, it is rare for somebody or a group of people to embrace idolatry without yielding to sexual immorality. You see that all over the place. Think about Moses. When Moses went up to the mountain to get those tablets and the law, what happened to the people? They began to worship that golden calf. As a result, what happened? Immorality. Right? It's very common. It happens again and again throughout history. And in fact, in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following that whole section, Paul talked about idolatry and immorality going together. So it's not unusual. So that's why I say here it's both and. No doubt that because of this false teaching, this false doctrine, they not only um, were corrupted, they committed idolatry that led to adultery, literal adultery. It's both and here. Then he talked about her bed of sin will be transformed, uh, transformed into a bed of pain. This false teacher, Jezebel, will face great pain and judgment. God is not going to just sit back and let this false teaching increase. He will bring great judgment, and he will, not, he will judge this person, but he will not only judge this person, he will judge the church. He will judge all those who follow after this false teaching and refuse to repent. God will judge. That's the promise here. He's a loving father. He's not going to let us continue on. I do believe that this is little judgment that Jesus is going to bring on these false uh, teachers. But it's also a prophetic judgment because in the future these false teachers will be judged permanently in hell. And so uh, Jesus made it very clear that none of the guilty would escape his judgment. Those who tolerate sin, those who tolerate false teaching will experience God's judgment. Do not be duped, and I've seen this happen many times. Do not be fooled by the enemy thinking that you're getting away with it. A little bit here is not that big of a deal. It's no big deal. Okay? Don't be fooled. The enemy will convince you that it's okay. A little bit is not going to hurt you. Because what happens when you take a little bit? You're going to want more. And then you're going to want more. That's what he wants. Don't be convinced that, oh, just a little bit here, a little bit there is okay. God hates it all. God will judge. Don't allow the enemy to convince you. And don't miss the incredible patience of Jesus Christ. In his gracious patience, he's given these followers time to repent. I love this. There's hope for me because there's always time for repentance. If they don't repent, Jesus will judge them by throwing them into uh, a great tribulation, great uh, difficulties. And the precise nature of this tribulation isn't mentioned. We don't know what it is. But we know it's going to be painful. We know it's going to be hard. And if they continue to remain unrepentant through this tribulation, it will ultimately lead to death. Right? And so we don't know the precise nature, but we know it's going to be painful. Now, there are some who have argued that this Jezebel person, whether it's a woman, whether it's a group of teachers, but this Jezebel person was a Christian who was teaching false doctrine and led others astray. Although this is a slight possibility, I, uh, I'm inclined to see her as an unbeliever who has crept into this church, convincing this church that she's got the word from God and she's going to teach. I think that makes more sense here in the way it's stated. But I want to make very clear in saying that, although she's an unbeliever, 
I want to make very clear that Christians can fall into such grievous sin. Okay, yes, believers can fall into false doctrine and go ahead and teach false doctrine. We have seen it. I know I've seen it many times. In verse 20, if you recall, I said, as I said before, Jesus said his bond slaves, his bond servants have joined Jezebel in her works. Bond servants are his people, and they have joined this false teaching. So don't think that you're okay, that because you're a believer, you can't fall. It's easy to fall if you're not careful. That's what happened here with the Christians at Thyatira. Don't get duped into it. This is the reason why we must not tolerate false teaching. We can't look at it and think, oh, a little bit is not going to hurt us. We can't allow ourselves to be duped to that way. And note that Jesus here will judge the, these believers. But when he judges these believers, this is not judgment, but rather loving discipline. Why can it not be judgment? Because, because judgment has already been paid. But God can discipline. And he will discipline. So for the unbeliever, it will be judgment. But for those of us who are believers who follow after false doctrine, God will discipline. And his discipline can be severe. That's what it takes to get our attention. In fact, this discipline can be so severe that it could lead to ultimate death. He could take your life if you continue in false doctrine. We see this in Acts chapter 5. Remember Ananias and Sapphira? They were believers. But they didn't repent and God took their lives. And then also <clears throat> at the church of Corinth, Paul talked about those who were mishandling the Lord's Supper. And what did he say? Some of them even sleep, meaning that they, God took their, their, their lives because they refused to repent. So don't think that just because we're Christians and we don't face God's judgment, we will face His discipline. And if we do not repent, He can and He will take our lives. So it's something we really need to think about. Because see, these um, uh, these are difficult matters when it comes to false teaching and false doctrine. And we need to take this seriously. We can't dismiss it. We can't ignore it. I think too often in churches, we don't even think about these things. And they should be at the forefront of our minds. Because they're dangerous. Look at this church at Thyatira and what happened to them. It's not something that we should just browse over and think it's not a big deal. And especially in our world today, this is very serious because there's false teaching everywhere. All in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. On the internet, on television, and wherever you look, you got people. I, I, I cannot listen to TV preachers. I'm sorry, I just can't. There might be one or two that are worth it, but the majority of them, my blood pressure gets high, and there are times <laughs> I just want to. I have to be careful because I end up sinning. Why? Because I think things and say things I should not think and say. And so we have to be careful. There's just too much out there. Be on the alert. Be careful. They're on the radio as well. Internet. Be careful. And so Jesus is going to judge false teaching and all those who follow after it, but he gives time to repent, praise his name. So repent of it. In verse 23, he makes it clear that his judgment will be death. I will kill her children with pestilence. That's judgment. So those who are tolerant, if they do not repent, note, not only will they suffer his judgment and suffering, they will suffer death. And for the unbeliever who tolerates, who is involved with it, of course, they, that, that death means eternal death. For the child of God, it is discipline. 
It's interesting that this church, the Church of Thyatira, is the only church that Jesus Christ commended for love, but also it tolerated false teaching. See, the church at Ephesus, they loved, but they, uh, they, they didn't tolerate false teaching, but they didn't love. This is a church that had great love, but the problem was is that it tolerated false teaching. And we have to be careful because sometimes in the name of love, we think we have to tolerate certain people. And I say, no, we don't tolerate false teaching. Not even for the sake of love. <clears throat> so this is a unique church. They had great love, uh, but they were blinded to the false teaching. How do you think this type of falsehood, this false teaching, how do you think it creeps into a church like the Church of Thyatira? <clears throat> I mean, they had a great church, they were active, they had strong love, but this false teaching crept in. How do you think it creeps in? You need to publish your standards. You need to publish your standards? Well, so it's obvious. And then you can point out to that person or about that person that this person said that this is not true. Okay. Let it be known. Okay. They weren't looking for it. They should have been looking for it. Exactly. They weren't looking for it. They weren't ready for it. Because they're not looking, they think everything's okay. We're active. We love. And then it creeps in. Please understand, Satan is not the type of worker that just stands up and says, Here I am! Look at me! He's very subtle. Very, very subtle. Right? And that's what false teaching is. Well, there used to be this analogy about a frog, you can put a frog in tepid water and you turn the temperature up, and it won't jump out because it's, it's a slow process of the water mm -hmm. boiling. Mm -hmm. And uh, sometimes people creep in and they kind of blend in, and then they start to bring out their false teaching little by little, and people are not, like Harry said, are not aware. Yeah. In fact, I, I've seen it in churches where that has happened where people begin to teach certain doctrines, but and it's very slight, very little. And the people listening would say, well, it's not that big of a deal. It's not that, it's, I mean, it, it's not that big of a deal because it's small. It doesn't mean I'm going to lose my salvation over it. It's nothing major. But what happens, like the frog, you get so used to it, and then you add to that little bit of false teaching, then you add a little bit. It's like what Jesus said, the little leaven leavens the whole lump, and it happens. And I've seen it happen in churches. I've seen it happen with preachers and teachers. I've seen it happen. If you keep steeped in the word, right, the Lord will give you discernment, won't he? He should. Yeah. Well, not he should. He will. The question is, is will we do that? No, I agree. Yeah. Praying, I pray constantly that God would open my eyes to all false teaching because I know that in myself, me, in myself, I'm easily blinded. I need God's spirit to keep my eyes open. I'm not so arrogant as to think, I've got it made, I know everything, and I can't be fooled. No, I can be fooled. I have been fooled. And so I need God's spirit. Just to add on to what Charlie said, um, that perhaps they weren't searching scripture to discern the, um, the Yeah, clearly they didn't have proper discernment. Right. Um, well, and we'll see that some did, but a lot of them didn't, and they just bought right into it. And I think we have to be very careful, because face it, there are some... There are some great guys, out there, I say great, physically in the sense of they're great people that know how to communicate well. Okay, Joel Osteen. I mean, you listen to him and you know people are just sucked right in. And there are hundreds of thousands that follow after this guy, thinking we got it made, we follow after this guy. He is a huge false teacher. 
You know, sometimes uh, a preacher or a person that you're talking about will say something and you, hmm, well, here, let me show you from Scripture. Mm -hmm. But they're taking it out of context. And you can make Scripture say anything or back up anything you can imagine. And that's why, that's why you have to be careful what you listen to, who you listen to. And if you have questions, question it. Yes, do question it. You know, sometimes we're afraid to question it. Say, no, question it. Talk to your pastor. Talk to your elders. Hey, I heard this. Is this okay? Let them help you. That's what they're there for. That's why they're shepherds. Right? So don't just buy into it because somebody said something. Hey, there's some great teachers out there that have said things that I don't buy into because I don't see it in Scripture. I disagree with their, their interpretation. It doesn't mean that just because they have a Ph.D. In fact, there's a lot of Ph.D.s. I don't trust them. I've seen it. I had to read their stuff when I was in my PhD program. It was hard. Some of the stuff I had to read, it's like, I can't believe these... You believe this? It's, it's unbelievable. So you, question it if there's doubt. If, you, if there's doubt in Scripture, question it. Question it for sure. Well, they just, also, it's not all error. They mix truth in there just to get you... That's, you know, that's what makes it dangerous. That's what makes it dangerous. Yeah, here and then here. <laughs> Oh, she was kind of like Joel Holstein. She was telling, telling them things they wanted to hear and giving them permission to do things they kind of wanted to do. Never thought of it that way, but you're right. <laughs> hey, there's Joel seen in Scripture. <laughs> <laughs> Beth Moore. She was like mainline, you know, solid Bible teaching churches following, you know, women yep. following her teaching. And then, and she starts to go you know, off, and now she wants women to be able to preach, and, and here she's written all these books, and, you know, I, I have some books that I've thrown somewhere, and I'm thinking, now, is this earlier in her ministry when she was okay, or is there any, is there any error mixed in with that, and so you just... It, it is hard. Mm -hmm. It's very hard, and it's sad. Beth Moore is a very sad illustration, mm -hmm. uh, but it, it's a good illustration. That's what could happen, yeah. and that's why we have to be careful, and that's the whole point here. That's the whole point here, is that we have to be careful because it's very easy to be manipulated fall into a trap. It really is. Just because we come to this church, and it's a great church, otherwise I wouldn't be here. So it is a great church. But just because we're here doesn't mean we're protected. We can be easily duped. And so we have to be careful. And I want to move on here. Notice here, in verse 23, I will kill her children with pestilence and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give you to each one of you according to your deeds. Now notice this uh, last part here of this verse. We see here that Jesus Christ is omniscient. He knows all things. That's how he judges. Right? We see this again and again throughout these, verse, uh, throughout these churches. And remember back in verse 18 that we saw Jesus had these uh, flames, uh, these eyes of, uh, that are flaming. His gaze penetrates everything. So no matter what we do, we need to understand, you cannot hide anything from Jesus Christ. He is omniscient. He sees everything. He knows everything. In fact, He knows things about us we don't even know about ourselves. He knows what you're going to think in the next five minutes. He knows what you're thinking right now. Probably looking at me thinking something crazy. Jesus knows that. I just want to warn you, He knows that. Right? <laughs> no matter what we do we can't hide anything from his sight he sees through and beyond every human facade every attempted cover up 
He sees. He knows everything. And so he knows all. He sees all. And he calls all account, all people to account for their deeds. See, this is his glory. That he knows all things and he will judge righteously. No else can, nobody else can make that claim. This is part of what it means to be glorious. He's omniscient. He knows all things. He sees all things. He sees the inner depths of every uh, emotion we have, of every thought we have. He knows it all. He sees it all. And, the, and by observing the, back then, by observing the things that were happening to uh, those entire Tyre, Christians in other congregations will then immediately know that Jesus knew everything. They did, this church could not get away with it. And, Jesus, and they knew that Jesus knew it. And that he will hold all people accountable. And please understand, there is no injustice with Jesus Christ. All that he does is just and right. Even if we disagree with it, there is no injustice. Who are we to uh, dec uh, declare what's just and what is not, right? So the judgment of Jesus is based on comprehensive knowledge of every idea in the mind, every um, impulse of the heart of every person on the face of this earth. It's a frightening thought. Everything, everything, everything that's in your mind and heart, he knows. Every affection, every desire, he knows. He knows. And he knows intimately. And the word for mind here is uh, literally, that word literally in the Greek means kidneys. It's used to describe the inmost solemn secretive movements of the soul. Every tiny little detail, he knows. So those deep inner impulses that we so naively think that are hidden from everyone's eyes, Jesus knows. They are not hidden, right? Every intent of the heart, every meditation of the mind, every fantasy, every fear, every emotion, every doubt, every deliberation, every decision, everything, he knows. And he even knows before it's there. So that there's no hiding. Praise God for his grace, right? Praise God for his grace. And so when God disciplines, he does so guided by comprehensive understanding and knowledge. No one can protest by saying, God, but I didn't mean that. Or, I was just kidding, God. That's not what I really meant. God knows. There are no excuses. That's why it's a just uh, judgment. And so every affection is seen for what it is. No matter how hard we strive to conceal it, he sees it and he knows us. So thus we see here then that wrong doctrine always corrupts and wrong doctrine calls down Christ's judgment. Very important that we understand this. Wrong doctrine is dangerous. It is dangerous. Now let's look at the last section. Uh, verses 24 through 29. These are his closing words. But I say to you, the rest who are in Thyatira who do not hold this teaching, who have not known the deep things of Satan, as they call them, I place no other burden on you. Nevertheless, what you have, hold fast until I come. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So right here, very important, we need to see 
the, the, uh, what, what Jesus is uh, telling this church, those who, are, um, who have not bought into this false teaching. And we need to, first of all, we need to understand, we need to imitate Christ all the time. I think that's what we see in verse 24 and 25. Because these are amazing verses for us in light of what's going on in the world today. Uh, we, that, that, what's really sad to me is when, when I look at the condition of the church in general, what's really sad is I, I feel like the church has lost its theological backbone we've become very weak and very cowardly and it's prevalent in many different ways I think about how many churches are beginning to compromise its view on accepting homosexuality you know for fear of being called homophobic and for fear of being uh, cast out we now come up with excuses or different ways to accept homosexuality that's okay and we see how soft churches have become on sound doctrine. If I hear people say this again, I think I'm going to scream that doctrine divides, so stay away from doctrine. I've heard that so many times. We're commanded to have unity, and this is accomplished only through love. Doctrine is too divisive. And so we don't preach doctrine. We don't teach doctrine here. And so we have this shallow, generalized teaching it's more acceptable because it's more loving. And that's far more prevalent than you can ever imagine. Yes. Um, it just seems like instead of church being an example of how culture can be, culture is changing the churches. And the church is bought into the culture. And one of the biggest, I don't want to say the biggest reason, but one of the big reasons why, I know because I took courses on this and I bought my money back because it was false courses. It's uh, seriously because they're talking about church growth. You ever hear the church growth movement? What's the best way to be growing in the church? Be relevant. No. Please understand, with everything that is in me, please understand this. The gospel is relevant. You don't make it relevant. Okay? The gospel is relevant. Get out there, live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let him take care of relevancy. Don't compromise in order to be relevant. Oh, it's so fr I'm sorry, I don't mean to be angry. It's a soapbox in my But I get it so often. You have to be relevant. I say, no, 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 no. I don't have to be relevant. The gospel has to be relevant, and it is. The gospel has been relevant from the beginning of time. To say that we have to make it relevant is to say that, well, God, you're not relevant. You sort of missed the mark, God. I mean, if anybody's relevant, it's God and his word. So let's forget this whole concept of relevancy. Okay? I don't see anyone in Scripture. I don't. If, if, if I've missed it, please show me. I beg you. But I don't see anyone in Scripture where I am commanded to be relevant with the culture. And yet, that is one of the big things that you hear constantly in church growth. Your church won't grow if you're not relevant. Listen, if my church grows because I'm relevant, then it's going for the wrong reasons. It's not true church growth. Right? I am commanded to be faithful to his word. Forget relevancy. Let God deal with the hearts of people. And if, if relevancy is what gets people to, to bring them in, then they may come in and my church may go to thousands, but when they die, where are they going? Straight to hell. When Paul talked about, you know, being too, I, I can't quote the verse, but he talked about, I'm, I'm to the Romans as the Romans, yeah. so that I may win some. He's not talking about 
taking on their the culture but identifying with them so that he can share the gospel which is relevant to them where they are exactly we he becomes all things to all people meaning that when i go to for example if i'm going to go to when i I did a mission trip to india when i went to india and it was a very poor part of india i didn't go there and try to change their culture and say you have to live like me as an american no i became like an indian right so I could teach them, and hopefully they understand and grow and draw closer to the Lord. That's what Paul means. So I'm not trying to change these people in that way. I want to be like them so that they will listen to me and I can share the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's a, that, that's, that's a big difference than what most people call relevant. And I think it's very dangerous, very dangerous when people want to become relevant. But that's the problem with the theological backbone being weakened by, uh, in our churches. We accept all of these things. And so we have to uphold the standards of truth. This is what happened at uh, Thyatira. They missed that, but there are those who held on to it. And so in verses 24 and 25, he gives them a special word of encouragement. And I love this because there are four things that Jesus points out here that I think are very critical for us to understand. Four points here in verses 24 through 25 that we need to understand. First, Jesus describes them as those who do not hold the teaching of this Jezebel. That's incredible. They do not hold to this teaching of Jezebel. They don't hold to the false uh, doctrine, and they don't practice her ways. So these are the people who have refused to take the easy path to fit in with the crowd, to listen to what this person has to say, accept it, and live that way. They refuse to do that. They are neither gullible, nor are they easily persuaded. They were not afraid to call this teaching false teaching, and they were not afraid to stay away and not live that way. They knew that rejecting, the, the, uh, rejecting this teaching, they knew that rejecting the way they lived, they knew that it wasn't popular, they knew that they would be considered weird or cast out, but they did it anyway because they knew the truth. They believed the absolute truth of the Lord, and they knew that this absolute truth of the Lord brought with it a certain way to live. And they chose to follow that. Question. We have many churches. We have some sound Bible churches and we have all to all spectrum. And we can, if we're in the church and it's a false teaching, we can leave and go to a one, find one that is sound, has sound Bible teaching. But here, did they, was there just like one church that, I mean, they didn't have many church, like a church on every corner like we do. Mm-hmm. So was this... It, it would have been, yeah, uh, it, it would have been difficult. It's not like, they, it, it's an important point you make. It's not like today. Mm-hmm. Okay, sometimes we, look, we read uh, an ancient script like this 2,000 years ago, thinking that, okay, they can go elsewhere. I think it was good that what they were trying to do is they were trying to prevent it and stop it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I know for me, if it, it'll never happen here, but if it should happen where they begin to teach false, I would want to confront it and try to change it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it doesn't work, then I would leave. But I don't want to just get up and leave. Mm-hmm. And it could be, very well be, hey, this is the church that we established. We want to bring it back to, uh, to what is right. Uh, but it, it's hard. It, it would have been hard back then. Hey, you know what? I'm going to go down two blocks and go to this church. And I'm just going to go to that church and whatever. It, it's not like it is today. Mm-hmm. But the beauty of it is that they refused to cave in. Mm-hmm. Uh, they maintained their integrity. Mm-hmm. And that's what Jesus commends them for. So they believed the absolute truth. They refused to compromise. And oh, how we need people like this in our churches today. People who refuse to compromise, regardless how, quote, popular 
it may sound or appear or look like. And so ask yourself this question, could Jesus save me? What he said to the, of these true believers, could Jesus save me and that I will not hold to shallow and false teaching and I will live a holy life? If not, then pray, God, make me this type of person that will not compromise because compromise is everywhere in our world today. So Jesus describes them as those who do not hold to this false teaching. Second, Jesus described them as those who have not known the deep things of Satan. <coughs> so Jesus calls the false teaching the deep things of Satan here. Now this phrase, has, this phrase, the deep things of Satan, has given rise to all kinds of weird thinking, uh, different views, and I don't want to get into all of it. I don't want to waste time doing that. Uh, the, the, the view that makes the most sense here is that uh, Jesus is telling them that um, the true nature of false teaching is demonic. Okay, that's what he's telling us. That the true nature of false teaching is demonic. And that's important to keep in mind. Because when you hear these people who are not teaching the truth, understand where it's coming from. Okay, they're not just incorrect, but they're allowing themselves to be influenced by the evil one. Just remember, these false teachers here, just like a lot of that we see on television, they were claiming that their teaching was of God. But Jesus is telling them, it's not of God. This is clearly of their father, the devil, if you will. Right? All false teaching is satanic because it brings forth deceit and false teaching. And that only comes from Satan. And so we, we should be shocked at what happens here and we should have red flags going up because see, people in this church, there are people who profess to know Jesus Christ, claim to be born again and have positions of authority and influence in the church and yet they fell for false teaching. There's no one that is above this. And so we should be shocked. And in fact, we should be startled to the point where God, do not let this happen to me. If there's anything in my life that is false, remove it. Need me only in the truth. I mean, it happened then, it can happen now. And I believe that what the church needs today more than anything is people with a strong backbone who resolve to hold to the true doctrine of Jesus Christ and live for His glory at all costs, even if it means their jobs or their lives. It's so important. The third thing we see here is that Jesus told these believers that they have, he places no other burden on them. He knew that what these believers were going through was not easy. There's a lot of persecution here. He called for sacrifice. He called for diligence in life, which of course would expose them to ridicule. And for some, it would even cost them their jobs. So Jesus is basically telling them it is enough that you stand firm and that you do not lose heart. You're not going to add any other burdens to them. And it's enough that you resist the temptation to cave in and join the crowd. So there's no other burden for them to continue what they've already been taught. Just keep going with the truth. And that's what he desires for us. That we would continue to persevere in the truth, not cave in. And then fourth, Jesus encourages them to hold fast until he comes. In other words, Jesus encourages them to persevere. And in our world today, it's getting harder and harder. But he wants us to persevere. 
right through to the end. Be immovable. Don't yield an inch. Do not compromise. That term hold fast means to be strong, to be mighty. So be strong, be mighty in uh, holding on to the doctrines uh, that uh, are true. Which of course indicates then, it implies then that holding on is going to be difficult. For us to maintain the truth, to maintain doctrinal integrity, doctrinal orthodoxy, it's going to be hard. There's a lot out there that uh, appears better. It's going to be hard. We're going to suffer persecution, especially the way the world is going today. We will suffer more and more persecution. It will be difficult. And so, <coughs> excuse me, Jesus knew that their commitment to obedience in a culture infested with idolatry and uh, perversion, he knew that it was going to be hard work. We need to realize this is going to be difficult. Don't think that if we hold on to the Word of God and His doctrine that life is going to be easy. Jesus is warning us it's going to be the exact opposite. It will be difficult. We live in a world that has Satan as their God. It's not going to be easy to maintain this type of life. And so he says, persevere right through to the end. Keep at it until he comes back. And so this is clear for us. We need to hold on to the truth because the enemy is subtle and he's not going to make it easy. You make a commitment to follow after Jesus Christ with all of your heart, hold on to orthodox uh, doctrine. Satan is not going to sit back and throw up his arms and say, I've lost another one. No, he's going to attack. Okay? Therefore, it's going to be difficult. You know, we have this false teaching out there that well, if you follow Jesus, life is easy. No, it's not. No, it's not. If you live their, their way, yeah, it'll be easy because you compromise. But you live this life that is committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be difficult. It will be difficult. Uh, in all honesty, we are spoiled here in this country, aren't we? We're very spoiled. You know, if, it, if the weather's not right, can't go to church today. The, the weather's raining and it's just not right. I'll just watch it on television. <coughs> Remember when I went to India, these people would walk two hours to go to church. Whether it's raining or whether it's hot. And they were excited to be there. You should see these people worship, put me to shame. They walk two hours. We can't even walk down the street because it's too hot. We live in Florida. Don't you know how humid it is? No, we've been spoiled. And we need to realize, we need to realize that we have to maintain right through the end. It's going to get difficult. It's going to get very difficult. It's becoming more and more prevalent today. We see Christians constantly being persecuted all over this world, and we're beginning to see it in our own country. And I want you to see here in verse 26 to 29 that Jesus rewards persistent commitment. When we are persistent in our walk with Him, He rewards it. It doesn't go unnoticed. He tells us. <coughs> He who overcomes, and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. So this is an incredible promise. And notice he's addressing true Christians. He says, he who overcomes. Unbelievers don't overcome. They will fall. Okay. So those who overcome are true believers. And he also talks about those who keep my deeds. For how long? Until he comes. Right? So we are to continue to live this way, continue persistent commitment. And so right here, in this verse, Jesus gives us two evidences of genuine faith. Genuine faith never stops. You never lose your faith. You overcome to the end. 
And secondly, it produces a pattern of obedience until the end. So, evidence that you are a true believer is that you persist in your belief and faith in Jesus Christ. And that persistence in your faith will overflow in works and obedience. That's what a true believer is, according to Jesus' own words here. And those who do that until the end, until he returns, will be rewarded. It does not go unnoticed. There is reward for that. And back in that day and throughout history, even those who overcome or conquer are the very people who are persecuted, right? We see that we saw that back in the Old Testament, we see it in the New Testament, we see it throughout history. Those who maintained their commitment are the very ones who suffered persecution the most. They'd be imprisoned, some would be executed. There are Christians today for their faith who are being executed. And from the world's perspective, it looks like we lose. We're the losers. You go through all this persecution, go through all these difficult times. Why would you do that to yourself? So we look like we are the ones who lose. Yet the promise is very clear. Those who give their lives over to Christ and give up their lives for his sake, they'll be given authority to rule over the nations. Even as Christ was given that authority back in Psalm 2. We will reign with Jesus Christ. It's an incredible promise that you and I, if we maintain through to the end, show that we are true, genuine believers. We will, not we might, not that it's a possibility, we will reign with Jesus Christ. Let that sink in. We're not the losers, we're the winners. If we live our lives committed to Him, and note in verse 27, he says, And you shall rule them with a rod of iron. The point here, the words that are used here is actually shepherding. In other words, we are going to shepherd the nations with Jesus Christ. So we will rule and shepherd along with Christ. And then in verse 28, he gives them another promise, and I will give him the morning star. And again, there are different views on this. But the bottom line here is that the morning star... If you look at um, Revelation chapter 20, 22, verse 16, Jesus says that he's the morning star. Very same words. So basically what he is saying here is that um, Jesus will give us himself. In other words, we have Jesus now, but there's going to be this much deeper, more full reception of who Jesus Christ is into our lives. We'll become like him. We will shine like him in victory. And that's the point that he's making here. It's a special, close relationship. And so the point that Jesus is making here is that genuine believers experience victory and they will reign. And so the prospect of this promise is to motivate the unfaithful people in the church to return back to God and be faithful and persevere through to the end. That's the point of this promise. So take this promise to heart. The point here is that it draws us closer to Him to live more faithfully to Him. So by all outward appearances from this world's perspective, we lose but in reality, we are the true winners because of this promise that Jesus Christ has given to us. Never forget, never ever forget that the saints have conquered Satan. <clears throat> Revelation chapter 12, verse 11 tells us the saints have conquered Satan. How? Because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony and they did not love their lives even when faced with death. 
That's how we have to live. So that we love him and live for him even when faced with death. So to put it all together, I just want to quickly close here because I know we're at the end here. There are many things we can learn from this letter to Thyatira. I just want to mention three that I want you to take with you. Okay, mm-hmm. Three things I hope that you can uh, hold on to, meditate on, and take with you. First, the first thing we learn is the seriousness of sin in the church and how God reacts to it. The seriousness of sin in the church and how God reacts to it. When looking at this church, it's not difficult to see how devastating sin is. God hates it, and God will judge it. It is devastating. It's not something we turn a blind eye to. He does not tolerate churches and Christians who follow after the world. God hates that. It's idolatry. And remember, no sin will be left unjudged. So the seriousness of sin in the church and how God reacts to it is very important. Second, there's true well, I should say there's clear evidence for true Christianity here. If you want to know what a true Christian looks like, we see it here. After pronouncing judgment on the compromises, he talks to the rest. And notice what he tells them. True believers do not hold to false doctrine. Their faith is uh, consistent in overcoming this life. And they live obediently before God. That's the evidence of true Christianity. We see that here. They're holding to true doctrine. Reject false doctrine. They live for the gospel. They live for Jesus Christ. They overcome in their lives consistently and persistently. We don't cave in. And then third is the stunning promise of God for those who are genuine believers. I love this promise, right? They receive the kingdom and they reign with Christ. That is the promise. We receive the kingdom and reign with Jesus Christ for all eternity. I know of no greater promise than that. Again, there's many other things we can learn, but those are the three, I pray, these are the three takeaways from this letter that you will take away with you and meditate and think on. And pray that the Spirit of God will transform and change your life through it. I did a lot of talking, and I apologize for that, but I'm trying to get through it. Are there any questions? Any thoughts? First uh, John 5, 4, for whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world. Yeah, whoever is born of God overcomes the world, exactly. That's it's basically what, and it's written by John, and he's writing, writing it here. It's a good point. What was that reference? Uh, 1 John 5, 4. Thank you. Okay, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll go to the service. Our Father, we thank you for this church and the things that we could learn from it. God, thank you for your grace that you gave your son Jesus Christ so that uh, we can have that eternal life. But Lord, I pray, I pray for each one here and each one in this church that you would protect us against sin and against false teaching that is in this world. There's so much out there. And only by your grace through the power of your spirit will we be protected against false teaching and compromise. And Father, we pray <coughs> that you would continue to work in our lives to give us strength to not only overcome but to live in such a way as to display the glory of Jesus Christ in everything we say and everything we do. Lord, help us to stay away from sin. Help us not to cave in. Help us to walk obediently in holiness before you. Now, as we go to this next hour, God, grant us the grace to worship and praise and honor you in all that we do. Be glorified in what we do, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Wow. I'll try to get through. I'll come.
Thank you, my dear. You're very welcome.